Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. The next week, we start a brand new series called Stories. Everybody say stories. I didn't grow up in church, so I missed a lot of the Bible stories that a lot of people know. And I know a lot of you are like me. You didn't grow up in church, so you haven't heard a lot of the amazing stories in the Bible. And then some of you grew up in church and were in Sunday school, and you've heard a lot of the stories from the Bible. But I think the problem with that is that when you hear the stories, you remember them as children's stories. When in fact, these stories are real people historical people, real people encountering a real God in real ways. In those real encounters, there's truths and principles in those encounters that we can apply to our lives and have encounters with a real God the same way those real people did in the Old Testament and New Testament. So we're going to unpack those the next few Weeks, But today we close out our Not Today Satan series. So if you have your Bibles, turn to a couple of scriptures, Luke chapter 17 and then Matthew chapter 24. Luke chapter 17 and then Matthew 24. Luke 17, I'm going to read it in, in two different versions. It says, verse 1, and he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one whom through they come. The New King James Version translates it this way, and it says, it is impossible. Everybody say, it's impossible. It's impossible that no offenses should come. So they both use that same word, temptation and offenses are the same word in the Greek. And they take a little liberty to translate it. One translates it temptation, the other offenses, when in reality, the temptation is offense. And Jesus says, it is impossible to live a life that you will not be offended. It is impossible for you to, to live a life and for somebody not to hurt your feelings. It is impossible for you to live your life and for someone not to betray you or to offend you or to try to tempt you with offense. And the word there is actually a word called scandalion. And it is a word used for snare or trap that they translated temptation and offense. And when you dig into this word that this trap is an offense, it's actually a specific part of a trap, like a mouse trap. Like Pastor Dylan was playing with this before service, about broke his finger off. But on a mouse trap, there's a couple of different components, but there's this one component right here where you put the cheese or the peanut butter. And it's the bait trying to get the mouse to grab a hold of the cheese that it wants. And when it grabs a hold, then the contraption traps it, it breaks its neck or its fingers if it's Pastor Dylan and holds it in the trap. And so when Jesus using this word, he's using this word to say the bait that Satan is gonna use to get you trapped is gonna be an offense. Someone's going to offend you or betray you or hurt your feelings and you're going to grab onto it, you're going to hold onto it and as you hold onto it, the trap of the enemy comes over top of you. The temptation is to take advantage of the opportunity that people are going to give you to be offended. 
And when you fall into the trap, you grab a hold of it, you end up being stuck where the enemy wants you, not where God wants you. So offenses will come. It doesn't matter if you're in God's will or not. I know you didn't come to church for the pastor just to come and tell you, hey, congratulations, you're going to live a life of being offended. But I will tell you, if you do live a life of being offended, it's usually a good sign you're in God's will. Because Jesus lived a life of people constantly trying to offend him. So you can be right smack in the middle of God's will and still deal with offense. You can be an usher at chapel. And someone's going to offend you by not wanting to scoot towards the middle. They're going to get angry and upset with you. You're going to have the opportunity to be offended. You work in chapel kids and you're trying to celebrate today and have fun with the kids. Some little kid's going to get mad and say no or spit on you or throw their little goldfish at you. If you work in the parking lot trying to serve God, out there trying to be the, the welcoming, showing them the love of God, the presence of God before people even enter the sanctuary. Someone's going to get upset and they're going to give you the good old one finger salute at church. If you're a community group leader and you're pastoring and loving and trying to serve people in our church, somebody's going to continually ignore your phone calls or your text messages. There's no mistake about it. You will have the opportunity to be offended. It happens. Someone's going to betray you. People may talk bad about you that don't even know you. You may be falsely accused. People will say things about you that are untrue. And by the time it gets to the third or fourth layer, people start believing it as truth. People will gossip about you. They'll slander your name. People will, will, will hurt your feelings. People will disagree with you and, and make it a personal issue. Some people will physically abuse you or sexually abuse you. Some things will be emotional, some will be physical. What I've learned is physical pain is less than emotional pain. Physical wounds heal, emotional wounds tend to linger. And most offenses that most of us have are, are real offenses. Either one, they're real, somebody truly offended you or hurt you. Or two, you just feel like or believe that somebody offended you or hurt you. And in doing so, they're all traps set up by the enemy to get you to hold on to that offense so the enemy can trap you and prevent you from living the life of freedom and joy and hope and love and peace and grace and mercy that God has called you to. What's amazing is Satan uses offense as his primary, primary trap for believers. And what he uses as a trap or an opportunity to trap us, God will use as an opportunity. The same thing Satan uses to trap you, God will use as an opportunity to give you a platform as a trajectory into your God-ordained destiny. In the same way Satan uses offenses to try to break your heart, God will take that opportunity and use it to soften your heart and help your heart become more like God's. Make no mistake about it. Offenses will come, but they are an opportunity to be entrapped by the enemy or used by God. I have a feeling that most of us keep our hands in the trap way too long. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. And the scripture is very, very profound. I'm gonna, I'm gonna set it up for you. This is Jesus. 
If you read the Gospels, there's a timeline going on in the Gospels. Jesus is born of a virgin. He's a, he's a child. Then you skip. He's about 30 years old. He's baptized. He's tempted in the wilderness. He starts his ministry. And for three and a half years, he teaches the disciples not just the word of God, but the ways of God. He teaches them about the gospel of the kingdom. He teaches them about the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the judgment of God. And then you get right before he goes to the cross, he starts teaching them about what's going to happen after he goes to heaven and then what's going to happen right before he comes back. And Matthew chapter 24 is this chapter that's just rich in all these prophecies that Jesus is telling about what it's going to look like right before he comes back again. He starts giving signs that there's going to be wars and rumors of war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be the, the moon's going to turn blood red. The sun's going to go dark. He's telling them all these signs. But then in this verse, in, in verse 10, he, he changes it up just a little bit. From it being universal signs or creation signs, he takes it. Now he's talking to the church about what's going to happen in the church right before he comes back. And in verse 10 it says, and then many will fall away and betray one another and even hate one another. So Jesus talking to the church, he says, right before I come back, here's going to be the position or the, or the health of the church that many are going to fall away, which means there'll be people that started serving God that quit. There'll be people that started following Jesus and then stopped following Jesus to follow the world. And then if you look at the New King James Version, again, the same words translated differently, it says, then many will be offended. Everybody say offended. Many will be offended, and then they will betray one another, and then they will hate one another. Jesus is talking to the church. And he says, at the end of times, right before I come back, the Antichrist spirit is not going to be a spirit of, of, of the Illuminati. It's not going to be the spirit of the new world order. It's not going to be the spirit of, of, of adultery or sexual promiscuity. He's saying, in the church... The spirit of Antichrist is going to be a spirit of offense. And if that offense is unchecked, it will turn into betrayal. And if that betrayal is unchecked, it will turn into hate for one another. Meaning, people you started walking the walk of Jesus and faith out with will begin to hate one another because of an offense that they grabbed a hold of. I don't know about you, but I see this as pretty much happening today. People that you used to call brother or sister, now you call enemy or stranger. People that you thought you'd be friends with forever, now you no longer talk to. People that you had prayed with at an altar, people that you knelt down, you worshiped with, had encounters with God with, you no longer talk to because something happened. And it may not even be something real, it may have been something you thought happened, and now you're offended, holding on to offense, which has caused you to betray the relationship or the commitment or the covenant you once had, and now you even hate them or despise them. That is the spirit of Antichrist. That's how the enemy dilutes the power of the church. That's how the enemy prepares his army for the second coming of Christ. And it's where we find ourselves when we're fighting and wrestling with Satan. He's always going to use the bait of offense. Father, we love you. And we thank you for all that you are. And Father, we thank you that you are a forgiving, merciful, and gracious God. And Father, right now we just pray for your church that we can carry the same characteristics, the same nature of mercy, 
forgiveness and grace. Father, let those who have been forgiven so much forgive others of much as well. Father, let us not be entrapped by offenses and hurt feelings and emotions. Father, let us stay true to the calling you've called us to. And so, Father, we just pray your blessings upon your word and your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Make no mistake about it. Offenses will come. If you're in church, you're not protected from offenses. If you're the pastor, you're not protected from offenses. I know that one of the hashtags of the last year to have has been church hurt. You will get hurt in church because we're people that are imperfect, trying to serve a perfect God. People have different viewpoints, different ideas. And what happens is we have these opportunities to either be offended or to address these issues in love and forgiveness and move forward. So if you've been hurt in church before, I want to say I am sorry from the depths of my heart. I wish I could make you a promise and say it'll never happen again, but I can't make that promise. As a pastor, I've been hurt in church over and over and over again. And I wish I could just pray to God and say, God, don't let it happen again. But I can't make that promise. Because offense is the number one tool of the enemy, but the number one opportunity of God. They will come. They will come. They will come. But listen, they don't have to stay. Offenses will come, but they don't have to stay. Well, pastor, you don't know what they did to me. I don't need to know what they did to you. Well, you don't know what they said about me. I don't need to know what they said about you. I need to know what God has said about me and to me about a spirit of forgiveness. Our kids are, have this deal where anytime they get mad and Somebody punches the other one, which I don't know if that happens at your house, but our house is like always on the verge of assault in most cases. <laughs> Something happened and somebody will punch the other one or slap the other one. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? You, you can't hit your brother or sister. Like we're, we're trying to be a loving family. And they said, well, they made me mad. And here's what I, I tell them every single time. They didn't make you anything. They don't have the ability to make you angry. They don't have the ability to make you sad. See, we give way too much power to other people. We say, well, they made me sad, or they made me hurt, or they made me angry, or they made me do this, or made me do that. And here's what I tell the kids. They didn't make you do anything. They gave you the opportunity to be angry. They gave you the opportunity to be offended. They gave you the opportunity to be sad. They gave you the opportunity to be broken. But you grabbed a hold of the opportunity and held it tightly. In the same way in church world, you're going to have the opportunity to be offended. But you have a choice if you grab a hold of it or not. You have a choice to either grab a hold of it and let go. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but most believers in the church today are holding on to an offense. It may look like a grudge. It may look like betrayal. 
It may be look, look like hurt feelings. It may look like, well, I forgave them. I just don't want to ever see them again. It may look like, well, you don't know what they did to me. It may look like sexual abuse and physical abuse and emotional abuse. There's something that people have they're still holding on to. And as long as you hold on to it, you don't get to experience the freedom that God has for you. Because as long as you hold on to an offense, you keep yourself at that time, the same attitude, the same place, the same mentality, the same perspective as the moment you were offended. And God says, you do not have to stay there. 24-10, many will be offended. Then they'll be betray one another. Then they'll hate one another. If you don't stop this root of the enemy, it turns into hate. So how's it work? Love and hate are so closely connected. No one will hate you as much as someone who used to love you. You don't believe me? Ask a divorcee. You don't believe me? Ask somebody who was super committed to their church and loved their church and they got their feelings hurt. I promise you, they talk more negatively about their church now than they ever talked about the greatness of their church. When people love much, they can hate much. And in the end times, it says, those that are offended end up hating much or despising much. And so here's what we need to learn. Just because you get offended doesn't mean you have to stay offended. So point number one is this, offense is an opportunity. Touch your neighbor, say opportunity. It is an opportunity to either die spiritually, meaning you're gonna die right where you are spiritually, you're gonna stop growing when you take them an offense, or fly spiritually, meaning it's an opportunity to be a platform into your God-ordained trajectory or destiny. They're both used in opposite directions, but they're both used by the enemy and by God. And what happens is you think that just because you got offended, you're supposed to stay there. Maybe, just maybe, God is allowing you to be offended because he wants to use you to display his glory. What if you got offended, not because the enemy hates you, but because God wants to use you to demonstrate the nature and character of Jesus in the flesh? Maybe he's tired of people reading about the mercy and forgiveness of God. He wants to actually display it through people. Maybe it's not even about you. See, offenses are opportunities to conform our actions, our attitudes, our love to either our offender Meaning when I get offended, I'm stepping off. See, spiritual warfare is all about standing firm in the victory God has already given you. And when the Satan baits you with offense, he's trying to get you to step out of the victory you already have into the character and nature of your offender. Meaning if he can't get to where you're at, he's going to try to draw you to where he is. And when you take up offense, you start acting the same way as the person who offended you. So it's an opportunity to conform to their image or conform to the image of God. Proverbs 19, I think 11 says, it is to God's glory to overlook an offense. I mean, it's to God's glory to overlook someone who actually hurts your feelings, someone who sinned against you, someone who abused you, someone who offended you. It's to God's glory for someone to be guilty and you say, you know what? I'm gonna overlook that and forgive you because God has forgiven me much. That's to God's glory. So you will never be more like God than when you're overlooking the offense of someone who offended you. Never. 
Jesus displayed this. He overlooked the offense over and over and over and over and over again. If you want to be like Jesus, you got to get used to forgiving other people. In the same way, if it's to God's glory to overlook an offense, it's to Satan's glory to hold on to an offense. It's to Satan's glory to hold on to. So when I'm holding on to offense, you may have one hand raised to heaven, but you got one hand pointed down to the hell. Because Satan got cast out of heaven by holding on to an offense. He was offended that God should sit on the throne and not him. He was offended that God received glory and not him. He was offended and he held on to that offense, offense and he's still holding on to that offense today. And his goal is to get every other person to hold on to the offense so they can join his army of bitter, broken people not experiencing the freedom and glory of Christ. It's, it's so easy. Many times it's, it slowly develops that offense happens slowly in a relationship, but something just breaks the camel's back and you grab a hold of it. So my, my challenge is this, that you're going to have opportunities to be offended, but what are you going to do with the opportunity? Or are you going to use it to grab a hold of it and to want to get your vengeance and, and hold on to the pain and the suffering and glorify the enemy? Or are you going to let God use it as an opportunity to move you up to where God wants you to be? See, pilots will tell you this, that when a plane takes off, they don't take off with the wind at their back. They take off into the wind. So whatever way the wind's going, they're going to take off in that direction because as they take off, it actually produces more lift. They can go slower and take off quicker and faster because the wind is coming beneath the wings and giving them greater lift. In the same way, when the winds of offense are starting to come your way, you can either let the winds push you back into the tarmac of life and not pursue your destiny, not pursue your dreams, not pursue your future because you said, the wind is blowing too hard against me. Or you can say, the winds of change are blowing beneath my wings. God must have somewhere else for me to go. So many believers, once the wind starts blowing, you go back into the corner and let the winds push you back because you're so scared of forgiving somebody who hurts you, you never walk free from the pain or bondage. See, an offended Christian is somebody who wants to take in the love of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, but due to pride, fear, and pain, refuse to release it to other people. Listen to that. This is the, the nature and the status of today's church. We could call this cultural Christianity where you want to take in everything God has for you. You want your calling. You want the, the Holy Spirit for you. You want, you want dreams. You want visions. You want grace. You want mercy. You want forgiveness. But you're not going to release that to anybody else. And, and here's a principle of the kingdom of God. Whatever God can't get through you, he will stop giving to you. Whatever he cannot get through you, he will stop giving to you. If that's financial blessing, you start becoming greedy, those blessings will stop. If it's mercy and forgiveness that you're receiving but you're not giving to anybody else, we'll talk about this in a minute, that forgiveness will stop. There is no such thing as a, as a believer who's been forgiven by God who doesn't forgive other people around them. There is no such thing. 
And so we have to look at the opportunities as chances to fly in the face of offense over the obstacles and the offenses, and you don't have to hold on to them. Matthew chapter 18 is a scripture. Jesus is teaching on unity. We, most of us use this chapter, and I'll tell you, I know most believers don't read their Bibles much. I, I used to say I believe every believer should read their Bible at least once a year. If you would just read your Bible once a day, I don't care how much you read or what you read. If you would just start reading your word, I promise it will change your life. And if you can read Matthew 18, just this one chapter, once a month, it will change your life. We, why do you say that, Pastor? Matthew 18 is all about forgiveness. The whole chapter, it gets, even says where two or three touch and agree, there God will be with us. We use that scripture, but like, well, there's two or three here. Uh, we, this is church. No, no, what he's saying is where there's two or three that don't have the spirit of, fit, of offense, where two or three have worked through opportunities to be offended, when they work through those problems, then they touch and agree, that's where God is. He gives these scriptures in Matthew chapter 18. It says this way, if your brother sins against you, go and tell Facebook and Instagram. <laughs> Make sure they know how evil he is and how good you are. Make sure they know how sinful he is and how righteous you are. No, just playing. Some of y'all don't read your Bible, so you thought that was true. You're like, really? Facebook was back there? <laughs> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you and jump him in the parking lot. That's how we do in church world. Take two or th one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What Jesus is saying is you're gonna have the opportunity to be offended. This is how biblically you handle offense. If somebody sins against you, the first thing you need to do is check yourself. Where's the plank in my own eye? Too many people want to go to somebody else first. No matter what the problem is, I've never found one person at 100% fault. I found people at 99 to 1 and 98 to 2, but there's always something I could have done or the other person could have done better to reflect Christ in the situation. So the first thing you need to do before you go start spouting off to somebody else is God, check me. God, where have I sinned? Where can I improve? Where can I show who you are better in this situation? After you've prayed through your stuff, then you can go to somebody else who's offended you. You walk through it. Hey, I'm so sorry this has happened. I don't know what happened between us. Here's where my feelings got hurt. Here's what I feel like happened. But I want to say I'm sorry for what my side of the equation. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I just want to work through this. Nine times out of 10, if they're mature believers, it stops right there and they become brothers or sisters again. If you're dealing with a narcissistic, crazy person and they'll tell you, I don't know what your problem is, I didn't do anything to you, then you go get one or two or three other people with you. Don't go get your homeboys or your homegirls. This scripture is referring to people who are neutral, not your posse, not your army going against their army. It's two or three people who are mature believers, 
not your sister-in-law, not your mother-in-law, two or three mature believers who can see the situation from different perspectives. They help mediate it, saying, well, here's what happened. Here's where I feel like I'm wrong, but we can't work through this. Then they can help navigate the situation. Usually that would help things out. If still this narcissistic, crazy person says, I don't know what y'all's problem is, then you bring the, the church into it, the elders or the pastors into it so we can help navigate this situation. Then if they say, you know what, this church is crazy, that person's crazy, sometimes if you're always pointing at other people as being crazy, maybe you're the crazy. Then it says, then let them go. It says, let them go on their own way, meaning forgive them and let it go because you can't change them, only God can change them. It says, let them go and refuse to treat them as a brother or sister, meaning you can still love them, you can still honor them, but it says treat them as a, a Gentile or a tax collector, meaning treat them as an unsaved person. You know what unsaved people get? Compassion, mercy, the gospel, meaning you probably shouldn't be hanging out with them unless you're communicating the gospel to them because it shows in their, in their interactions they're probably unsaved. So if you want to be set free, you have to let them go and you have to move on. You can't stay at the snare. Well, you know what they did to me? Or you know what? No, if you do that, you're still dealing with bitterness and offense and you're staying in that same spot where you got offended at. See, God gives us the ability to navigate the conflict. He says, offenses will come. Here's how you deal with them. So why does the majority of the church carry offense? Why does the majority of church people not do this? Why do a majority of church people still deal with bitterness and unforgiveness? I can tell you why. Because when we get offended, it becomes very self-centered and emotional, and we begin to justify our unforgiveness. We begin to justify why we shouldn't forgive somebody else. We start to justify why we can be in sin, why we can do something, but then we don't justify everybody else. And I'll tell you this, either you can justify yourself or God can. And when you justify yourself, it's to your standard. When God justifies you, it's to his standard. And when you begin to justify your unforgiveness or your offenses, you begin to betray God and even yourself. When you begin to justify, and people will help you justify, people, you'll, you'll start justifying yourself in your mind. You'll start telling yourself, well, you know, they, they did this, they knew what they were doing, and if you forgive them, they're gonna do it again. You know, God's a merciful God. God can give you mercy and grace for holding on to that unforgiveness. And what you're saying is, I deserve mercy, they don't. I deserve forgiveness. They, you'll start justifying, even though scripture clearly says it is God's will for you to forgive other people. Like the, you don't have to ask God, God, should I forgive them? The answer is always yes. Well, God, God, should I, should I move on from this situation? The answer is always yes. You can't ask God for something he's already told you. See, we try to pray our way out of God's will. We try to pray ourselves out of actually doing what God has called us to. Colossians 3 says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, that's you, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Everybody say forgiving. 
He's talking to the church. Your job, your goal, your role is to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you all also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Jensen Franklin says, our greatest temptations will come during our greatest justifications. I mean, when you start justifying your sin, and here, here's one way we do this. Well, you know, God's a merciful God, so he's okay with me, you know, having a little bit of fun every once in a while. Oh, God's a gracious God. God's a loving God. You know, it's, you know God is, loves people so much, then it's okay for me to live in a, in a homosexual lifestyle. God created, you begin justifying. Well, you know, God, God turned the water into wine. It's okay for me to be a drunk. We start justifying our sin, and when you justify your sin, whatever sin you're justifying is always gonna be what you're tempted with. Because the enemy already knows he's already got you. So he's gonna keep using the same cycle over and over and over and over again, and you're gonna start thinking that your temptation is God's will. When you begin to justify your temptations, you'll begin thinking your temptations are God's will and you'll start justifying your failure instead of your holiness. The reason people don't do Colossians chapter three is because they justify why they shouldn't forgive, but God should. And when, you when that comes to betrayal, what it means is, betrayal is this, meaning when somebody thought you were loyal, but they find out otherwise. Meaning when you hold on to unforgiveness or an offense, God saved you through forgiveness and mercy. He forgave you so much. And when you begin to hold on to offense, what you're saying is, well, God, what you forgave me of is not nearly as bad as what so-and-so did to me. And God thought he had somebody who was faithful, somebody who was loyal, somebody who was forgiving. He thought if he loved you first, you'd love other people. He thought if he forgave you, you'd forgive other people. Now you grabbed a hold of the bait. Now he's realizing you weren't as loyal as you made it as you were when you were at that altar of praise. Now he's realizing you weren't as acceptive of his grace as he thought he was. And then secondly, betrayal is you're exposing somebody to the enemy. The only problem with betrayal in this sense is that when you betray through holding on to an offense or unforgiveness, the person you betray is yourself. If betrayal is exposing someone to the enemy, when you hold on to offense, whatever it is you're holding on to, that is what you're exposing to the enemy for him to use against you. Whatever you hold on to, the enemy will use against you. Anything you hold on to too tightly, the enemy will use to test your heart against God. If it's your kids, he will use them. If it's your money, he will use it. If it's offense, he will use it. Whatever you hold on to, he's gonna use as a trap to test your heart and loyalty towards God. And what's sad is you can't move forward until you let go. As long as you're holding on to that bait, you can't move on to what God has called you to. You'll be stuck in the wilderness of offense, never reaching your promised land. One of the great books ever written, Where the Red Fern Grows. Every southern boy should read it. Where the Red Fern Grows, little boy gets two little hounds, coon hound dogs. Problem with the hound dogs, you have to train them and so to train them, you have to have the scent in order to train them. So he has to have a raccoon before he can hunt raccoons. 
So a little boy made a, a trap to try to catch a raccoon. He's out in the woods and he finds a log that's on the ground. And this log, he drills that little hole where a knot is. And he takes a little shiny piece of metal because raccoons just love anything shiny. He takes that piece of metal, he drops it in that hole, and he nails four little nails going diagonally into the hole this way. So what happens is the raccoon can reach into the hole and grab the shiny thing, but once it grabs it, it makes a fist, it can't pull it out past the nails. It gets stuck, and sometimes the raccoon is so furious to get out, it actually rip off its own paw because it refuses to let go of whatever it's holding on to. And as he's holding on to it, the, the boy and his dogs hear it. They can come capture the raccoon and then listen to this. They can take that raccoon and skin it and use that scent to train the dogs. Some of you are holding on to an offense that you've been trapped by the enemy. Now the enemy's using you and your scent to train other people to chase after other people. He's using your spirit of offense to get other people entrapped in what they're going through. Some of you are so offended that you are now not just worshiping God, now you're worshiping the enemy and you are a weapon in the tool kit of the enemy. Everywhere you go, it seems like people get offended because you carry the spirit of antichrist. And you cannot move forward until you let go. But you won't let go because you've justified yourself in God's eyes. You see this with David. King David in the Bible, 1 Samuel, the whole book of 1 Samuel, get around 1 Samuel chapter 24. This is kind of the scenario. 1 Samuel chapter 24, David was anointed king of Israel. Saul was offended that David would be anointed king. It was God's will for David to be king. When Saul got frustrated and offended at David, he began to chase David, trying to kill him. Literally kill him. Why? If he killed him, Saul could stay king. So David begins to flee. Listen, he's in God's will. David did nothing to deserve to be chased, to be slaughtered. All he was was faithful to God. Yet Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him, try to murder him. In 1 Samuel 24, David is in his cave hiding out because of the rage of Saul. And while he's in this cave, he's yet a strong man with him. Saul, who's chasing him, comes into the cave where David is at to relieve himself. You know, if you're a king, that's a bad day. Hiking up your tunic or your toga, whatever he's wearing, hiking it up right in front of the person you're trying to kill. It's dark. Here's David's opportunity. Does he take the bait of Satan to grab a hold of the offense just like Saul had? Because that's all offense does. When someone else is offended, they're trying to get you to be offended with them. So Saul's offended, so David has a choice. He can become like Saul and be vengeful, or he can be like Christ and be forgiving. The problem is David had his strong men around him and they started telling him, David, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. David, God has brought him right here. We can take him out right now. See, when you're innocent, it's very easy to justify vengeance. When you've done nothing wrong, it's very easy for a, a temptation of the enemy to look like the will of God. And they're trying, David, let's kill him. Let's take it. Then you be, become king. And David says, whoa, whoa, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. I, I can't touch the Lord's anointed. And he takes his knife and cuts a little slip off of his garment. 
And as Saul leaves and he goes out in the field, David stands up and says, look here. You've been chasing me because you're your spirit of offense. And I could have taken you out in the cave, but I refuse to touch the Lord's anointed. Saul says, you are a faithful man. He says, you shall be king over Israel. And two chapters later, Saul died. God did what God wanted to do instead of David doing what David wanted to do. And some of you are so busy trying to kill the people who offended you that you can't let God work. Because here's the scenario. As long as I'm trying to be vengeful for myself, God can't. As long as I'm trying to take on my enemies myself, God puts his hands up and says, if you got it, you got it. But the moment you step back and say, you know what, I'm not going to embark in this territory. I'm going to trust God and let God do what God can do. Then God swoops in and says, I got this. And God will do for you in moments what will take you a lifetime. Unforgiveness unchecked will turn into betrayal. And if you don't check your betrayal, it always turns into deep-rooted anger and hatred. Every single people group, every single person that hates another person, it stems from love. It's rooted in love and fear of losing love. And when you have unforgiveness in your heart, you become angry with God because you'll blame God for your pain. You'll be angry with other people. And hate is not always, you know, a, a hate, hate, hate. It's a, I despise you. Meaning, I don't want to see you when I go into Walmart type thing. Meaning, I don't want to worship at that church if they're there as well. I, I don't, I don't want to, I've heard people say, well, if they're going to heaven, I don't want to go. Well, then you are very seriously mistaken the glory of heaven. See, when unforgiveness settles deep in your heart, it produces this division of souls, this division of love, this division of hate and love and black and white. What happens is you start thinking everybody that's your enemy is God's enemy. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, this angel shows up, and Joshua asks the angel, he says, who are you for, us or for them? He just says, no. Listen to that. Joshua, the leader of Israel, there's a battle about to take place. The angel of the Lord shows up. He says, are you for us or are you for them? He says, no. What he's saying is, the Lord is for the Lord. He's not for you. So here's the deal. Either on the, you're either on the Lord's side or you're not on the Lord's side. We can't get God to move onto our side. And what happens when you hate somebody, you think God is for you and he's against everybody you're against. I'm sorry to tell you, there's people you don't like and there's people you probably hate that God loves. There's probably people you don't like necessarily, but God is still going to use them. I, I've had situations, I've been praying, God, how could you use that individual? They're wicked, they're evil, and God spoke so clearly in my spirit. He says, I know they are, but I'm not done using them yet. And I said, that ain't the way you're supposed to work. <laughs> and it opened up my mind that just because I'm against somebody doesn't mean God is. First John says this, verse 420, says, if anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. And I believe there's a whole lot of church people that say, I love God, but I hate President Obama. I love God, but I hate President Trump. I love God, but I hate Kanye West. I love God, I hate Beth Moore. I'm sorry to tell you, you're a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he cannot see. How can he love God 
if he cannot love his brother who he can see, how can he love God whom he cannot see? And he goes on in chapter two, verse nine, it says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The one thing I've learned about hate is when you have hate in your heart, you're blind to truth. What that means is when I, when I despise somebody else, all I can see is their negative qualities. When I, when I despise or dislike or hate somebody else, I'm blind to the truth of all their good features. I'm blind to the redeemable qualities they have. I, I'm blind to the opportunities that grace could have in their life. See, when you're full of hate, you're in the dark and you can't see anything except for what's going on in you. And you begin to think the world revolves around you and what you think and your opinion and what you want and what you desire. And Dr. King said it this way, hatred paralyzes life, but love releases it. Hatred confuses life, but love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life, but love illuminates life. See, offenses will come but they do not have to stay. And there's many of you in this room, some of you have been holding on to offenses for years, some of you for decades, and I'm gonna tell you, maybe you were innocent, and maybe what they did to you was real, and it was evil, and it was dark, and it was sinful. But until you forgive them, because forgiveness is the key that unlocks the trap, of offense. You're praying for the freedom of God. You're praying for the joy of God and you're never gonna experience it holding on to that offense. See, if, if forgiveness, if offense is a debt owed, meaning when you offend me, you owe me something because you hurt my feelings. Forgiveness is a debt paid, meaning it's paid in full. I don't, I don't need anything else from you. I don't need you to give me anything. I don't need anything else. I'm done and I'm over with. See, forgiveness is this release that as, as long as you're holding on to offense, what you're saying is, I want to turn my offender over to Satan. I want Satan to deal with it. I want Satan to make them pay. Because God doesn't punish people. God will discipline people, but he's not going to punish people. And when I'm holding on to offense, what you're saying is, I'm going to keep them away from God, and I'm going to turn them over to Satan because I want Satan to punish them in hell. While forgiveness releases your offender, not from Satan, but to God. If God wants to be vengeful, God can be vengeful. If God wants to show grace, God can show grace. If he wants to show mercy, he can show mercy. But the choice is, I'm either going to be like Satan and try to turn them over to Satan, I'm going to be like God and turn them over to God. And I promise you, God will know what to do much better than you will. For forgiveness is a release. I'm releasing people from what they've done to me. I'm releasing people from the penalty for what they've caused in my life. And I'm releasing them from the prison and bondage of, of what they've done to me only to realize that the prisoner I'm releasing is me. Like when you realize, when you hold on to offense, we think we're making them pay for what they've done to us. There's people that offended you. They don't even know they offended you. They're living their life in joy and happiness while you're going through hell on earth. 
And you're looking at their social media thinking, why are they acting all happy at the beach? They know what they did to me. Why are they going to try to throw it up in my face? Why are they going to try to? No, they don't know. You're just crazy. (laughs) They ain't thinking about you. You're thinking about it because you're still living in the same situation and timeline that happened 20 years ago. And until you let go, you'll realize, now I'm free to pursue my calling, my joy, my happiness to move forward, and they can go wherever they want to go. If they want to go with me, they can go, but if they want to go the other way, let them go. It releases them to God and releases you to become more like God. A couple weeks ago, there was a a roommate in Israel who was actually connected with the young man and the police officer in this situation in Dallas where the police officer walked into the apartment. She thought it was her apartment. There was a man in there. She shot the man, only realized she was in the wrong apartment. And it was crazy. And at the sentencing, one of the most powerful expressions of forgiveness, mercy, and the gospel I've ever seen was displayed. I want you to check it out real quick. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us I think you know that but I just I hope you go to God with all what all the guilt all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but... Can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. 
This young man had a legit opportunity to hold on to the bait that Satan put in front of him. He, he did nothing wrong. His brother did nothing wrong. But I think he realized what I'm trying to tell you today. Forgiveness is not about the person who hurt you. Forgiveness is about you. I think he realized if he didn't forgive her, he'd spend the rest of his entire life facing the pain and guilt of unforgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus tells a story to kind of magnify this. He says there's a great king who forgave this, this man of a tremendous debt, and we'll just use the number of a million dollars. The king was settling his debts, he brought this man in. He said, hey, you owe us a million dollars, I'm gonna put you into prison until the debt is paid. And the man cried for mercy, he literally said, King, I have a, a family, I have a wife, I have kids, and I, I can't support them if I'm in prison, I'm in jail. And he just pled for mercy. And the king says, you know what? Since you've asked for mercy, I'm going to forgive your debts. And he forgave him of a million dollars. It says this man, who just was forgiven so much, left. And as soon as he left, the first person he encountered was somebody who worked for him who owed him a hundred dollars. It says he took the man, he threw him against the wall, started shaking him and beating him. He said, you owe me $100. You owe me $100. And he got the cops to take the man and throw him into prison until he could pay the debt. And then the king heard about this. The king brought the man back into the, the castle, whatever it may have been. And he says, son, did I not forgive you of a million dollars? How come you would go and then try to take $100 owed you? How could you not forgive somebody when you've been forgiven so much? And he actually uses the word, he says, you wicked servant. He says, cast him out into the darkness. Obviously, the king is God. And what it's saying is, when you realize God has forgiven you of eternal debt, eternal debt, he expects us to forgive of relational temporal debt. And forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. It means I'm releasing you from what you've done to me. It's like this young man, I'm releasing you and I pray God's best upon you. You've taken from my family, but I pray that you don't end up like my brother dead and buried. I pray you end up blessed by God. See, when you truly forgiven somebody, you can pray blessings upon them, not curses. In the same scripture, Matthew 18, the disciples say, well, how, many, how often should we forgive somebody? Seven times? And some of you are asking, well, how often do I got to keep forgiving the same person? Jesus said, not seven times, 70 times seven. Which is not about you trying to figure out in your calculator, what's 70 times seven? I think they're close. It's not about keeping count or keeping the score. It's about losing count. Jesus lost count 2,000 years ago. And I know every single person in this room has been offended at some point. And my prayer for you today is that today is the day you let go of the trap and you begin the journey and the process of forgiveness. You begin to walk in the freedom God has given you, the grace he's given you, and it begins to flow in your life and through your life to other people. And I know every single person in this room has wounds. 
in the movie Black Hawk Down from years ago about the battle of Mogadishu. They're trying to get out of Mogadishu. They're in the marketplace and the colonel's trying to get them back into the convoy and one of the sergeants, he tells them, get in the truck and drive. And the young soldier says, but I've been shot. And the colonel says, we've all been shot. Now get in the truck and let's go. Listen, all of us have been wounded. All of us who have been serving God have been hurt by somebody. The goal is not to stay in your place of pain. The goal is to move forward. There's a mission on earth for me to take the forgiveness God has given me and put it on other people. Take the mercy he's given me and put it on other people. My job is not to stay at my point of pain. My job is to use my pain as a platform to God's glory. And so here's what we're doing today. Today starts the journey. Today starts the process. So I want everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. And here's what it's going to look like. Forgiveness is a release. And it's a release to God for God to do what God wants to do. If it's vengeance, it's vengeance. If it's mercy, it's mercy. But I'm going to pray God's blessed to them. We're going to start that process today. In every worship God, even at these tables, there's tables down the front, there's tables in the back, there's tables upstairs. There's pieces of paper. And we're going to go back into one more song of worship. And here's what I want you to do. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, I pray you prick the hearts of every single person in this room. I pray you show them faces of individuals who have offended them, the names of people they're holding grudges against, the names of people they despise and dislike. And I pray that you allow those to be a conviction of the heart. And right now in this moment, a purging of the heart to renew them to the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. And so as God is showing you names, we're going back to the song. Here's what I ask for you. I ask that you take that piece of paper in your worship, God, or a piece of paper here at the tables, and I pray you write their name on that sheet of paper. As you write that name, I want you to begin to pray, God, God, I release them from penalty. I release them from the offense. I release them from the bondage they put me in. God, I'm letting go of this trap, and I'm moving forward. Father, I dedicate them to your hands, your will, thy will be done in their life. But Father, I pray blessings upon them. I pray salvation upon them. I pray healing upon them. I pray deliverance upon them. And as you do, I want you to drop it in one of these buckets that are full of water. And I take one of those spoons. I want you to stir that water. And as you stir that water, that paper will disappear. And I want that to be a mental image to you what's happening in the spirit. That as you release things in prayer and you allow them to go through the water, through the blood of Jesus, that he washes all things and makes all things new Again, you don't have to go back and fix your moving forward in Jesus' name. If you would, stand to your feet all over the room. Like I said, this is a moment of prayer and release for you. Some of you are going to be writing down the names of ex-spouses. Some of you are going to be writing down the names of your father, your mother. Some of you are going to write down names of people who offended you or betrayed you or assaulted you or raped you. Some of you are going to write down names of, of people that you were in relationship with, friends with, that you felt like betrayed you or stabbed you in the back. This is a moment for you. This has nothing to do with them. This has to do with you being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven who's been forgiven much and God expects you to forgive much. And as you do, you use it as an opportunity not to glorify the enemy, but to glorify God in the midst of your pain. In Jesus' name, amen.